Hey, wrestling fans, did you know the Ringer Wrestling Show is going five times a week? Oh yeah, it's true. Mass Man Show twice a week. Cheap Heat twice a week. New podcast Wednesday Worldwide. That's on, guess when? Wednesdays. But we're heading toward WrestleMania. There's a lot of wrestling stuff going on. The Ringer Wrestling Show, only on the Ringer Podcast Network. This episode of the Bill Simmons Podcast is presented by State Farm. If you ever been in an accident and you're okay, but you know what happened? Your first reaction is going to be, man, why did that happen? If you ever buy a new house or a new car or a new anything, there's this little rush you get when you're like, I did it. I made it happen. But really, the only words you need to remember are like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to help choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. This episode is brought to you by Simply Safe. Make this summer the best one yet. Invest in a Simply Safe home security system. I have one. I love it. It's a great way to protect your home when you're not there. Um, you need one, especially during the summer. You know what burglars know? People go away during the summer. That's what happens. So when you're away, you want to make sure your place is protected. You want to make sure that you potentially have little camera things you can watch on your phone to see what, what's happening at your house, at your front door, inside. You deserve some peace of mind. Get it today with Simply Safe. Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com slash BS. There's no safe like Simply Safe. We're also brought to you by the Ringer Podcast Network. Put up a new rewatchables on Monday night. We did Sleepless in Seattle. It is the 30th anniversary of that movie. It's one of the great rom-coms of all time. Nora Ephron, Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan. Are they the goats of rom-coms? Are these the two best stars you'd ever want to have in a rom-com? Who would it be in 2023 if we remade this movie? I argued about that with Amanda Dobbins and Julia Libman. We really argued in this too. This was a contentious podcast at a couple different points. I still stand by my 2023 remake suggestion, but um, this is a really fun movie to talk about because there was a whole bunch of different things going on in 1993, a whole bunch of booms. I don't want to spoil it for you, but it was a multi-boom filming of that podcast. Anyway, Sleepless in Seattle, you can check that one out. I hope you're following Last of Us on the Prestige TV podcast. I love that show. Tough ending, tough ending. Last of Us, you don't really walk away going, man, I'm in a great mood. It's just all roses and sunshine after after episode five. Now, it's the opposite. It's dark. Um, it uh, it really takes you some places. But we break down that podcast on Sunday nights with Van Lathan and Charles Holmes. And then during the week with the House of Our combo, Molly Rubin, Joanne Robinson, you can hear both of those pairings on the Ringerverse as well, which is about to heat up apparently with the Mandalorian show that I still haven't watched. Everybody loves it. Everybody's telling me I should watch it. Can't quite get there yet. Hey, here's where we're getting for this podcast. We're taking a break from football. We're taking a break from basketball. We're going to talk about the future of absolutely everything with our guy, Derek Thompson. It is all next. First, our friends from Pearl Jam. All 
All right, Derek Thompson is here. He writes for The Atlantic. He hosts a great podcast for us called Plain English. And every once in a while, he comes on this podcast and we talk about the future. We talk about where things are going. That is a big obsession of yours. When, do, when did you become a where things are going guy? Like what age? At what age? <laughs> I'm not sure there's a, I can pinpoint an age. I feel like, you know, are we all kind of where things are going, people? I feel like you know, the future of whatever industry you're in or whatever industry you're interested in, uh, I think it's inherently interesting. I, I've always found, definitely since I became a journalist, that if you can write about the present, uh, that's great. That's good reporting. But audiences really want to hear about like the edge of the present, not like the, the far off future that gets a little bit like make believe. But if you can yeah. tell them like the next click of the dial, what's coming next, I just find that, you know, the, the audience is bigger. And so I I try to you know imagine ways that the reporting that I do that I do can point to different kinds of futures that could unfold from it. So you weren't in like third grade going geometry, where is this going? What's the future of Euclidean geometry, man? No, that was not a thought in third grade. Um, it's not a thought I don't think I've ever had until about two and a half yeah. seconds ago. Um, okay. Yeah, more of, a, more of a journalist thing, I suppose, uh, joining the Atlantic. So before we do where we think things are going in 2023, we should go backwards to the beginning of 2022, where we thought things were going. I didn't prep you for this part, but what did we get wrong about 2022? What was our biggest mistake? I mean, you've done some great stuff. You had a whole podcast recently about how the fake meat rise and fall of that whole era and all the reasons for that. But I don't think people going into 2022 were like, here's the year for fake meat. I think people worried about the housing and the real estate and stuff like that. What else and what got borne out versus what was overrated? Yeah, well, let's start just before 2022. The first episode of Plain English, I brought on Kevin Roos, a reporter from the New York Times, and we wanted to talk about the weird future in tech. So what do we focus on? We focused on crypto and the metaverse. Remember the metaverse, Bill? Yeah. Remember when people were talking about that? Crypto is the sort of thing where because of the rise in interest rates, because of inflation, you can point to basically last year's Super Bowl as the peak. I mean, last year's Super Bowl, we called it the Crypto Bowl because there were so many crypto advertisements. There were exactly zero crypto advertisements in this year's Super Bowl. And that is so reminiscent of the dot-com bubble. You had the little sock puppet from Pets.com in the 2000 Super Bowl. I think there were like 14 different dot-com companies that advertised the 2000 Super Bowl. One year later, they were all wiped out. I mean, some of them got bought up, but I think half of them went defunct. So to a certain extent, I would say that's one of the biggest things that we missed is that crypto was thought of, especially Bitcoin was thought of, as a hedge against inflation. Crypto will go up if inflation goes up. The exact opposite happened. Crypto acted just like a growth stock. It fell like every other growth stock. And so that's something that I think the tech community got broadly wrong was the resiliency of crypto. So you've done podcasts about this and I don't want to just retread Thank you've already done, but it seems like the big thing we got wrong with crypto was the lawlessness of it. That I think people were kind of having their fingers crossed that it would be okay. And it just wasn't and that's what we got wrong. And you think like whatever we say about the financial institutions we have now, there's been a lot of trial and error and a lot of checks and balances that are in place. This world did not have those checks and balances. That was one way it went wrong. What, any other like big reasons that this didn't work? I think there's two vectors along which crypto failed. The first vector you pointed to, the fact that it is so rife with fraud. And it was always rife with fraud. But I think a lot of people were surprised that a company like FTX, led by Sam Bankman-Fried, 
who was it sometimes analogized to like J.P. Morgan or Warren Buffett. They, they considered him, even though he was only 30 years old and like never wore a suit, they thought that he was going to be, he was like the grown up in the room in the world of crypto. And the fact that he's turned out to be more like the Elizabeth Holmes of crypto, I think has really shocked a lot of institutional investors, a lot of people that would put money in a venture capital firm that would then give that money to crypto funds. So I think the implosion of FTX has just been an absolute asteroid crashing into the earth for crypto. The other is, and we'll talk a little bit more about the, the issue of use cases, I think, in one of the, the predictions we might make, but I mean, crypto had a long, long time to spend billions and billions of dollars to create an actual consumer use case outside of betting on dollars to go up. I mean, that's really the use case for crypto, right? It's an opportunity for people to gamble. You know, you can you can gamble on you know the the line of the Celtics game, and you can gamble on the line of on the the future appreciation of Dogecoin. It's the exact same thing. That's not a use case. That's not like Uber. That's not Venmo. That's not something like Twitter. And crypto really struggled to build a use case, a utility outside of just gambling on numbers to go up. What was the last thing that's started from scratch that became a massive thing? How far do we have to go back? Because even like Twitter is 2007. So what, you know, out, out of like the last 10 years, like what, what is the most recent Snapchat? What is the most recent Twitter? What, what is the most recent, what, you know, FTX was trying to do? Have we had one in the last six, seven years? It's ChatGPT, I think. It's ChatGPT, wow. which is the new technology from OpenAI. It's an AI that responds to text prompts. It can write parody. It can answer questions. It often hallucinates wrong answers. But it's this astonishing toy that is fascinating because on the one hand, I don't know if you've used ChatGPT, but it's like kind of a shit product. It lies all the time. It makes mistakes. It's, it's extremely bare bones. It doesn't look very good. Bill, it also has 100 million users around the world. OpenAI does no marketing. It does no advertising. This thing went naturally viral to get 100 million users around the world for a shit product. And that kind of reminds me of these sort of products that in the past were the minimum viable product already succeeded way past people's anticipation. That, you know, that, that, that is something a little bit like the iPhone. I mean, like when the, when the iPhone came out, 2007, January 2007, you know, people made fun of how expensive it was, $500 unsubsidized. They made fun of how terrible the call quality was with AT&T. You couldn't use any kind of app store. That was still 16 months away. But still, there were enough early users, early adopters who said, there's something here. It's just, it just seems like this, is, like this might be a kind of future. Now, I'm not trying to say that ChatGPT like, is the next iPhone, but I'm saying that when something this obviously flawed nonetheless gets 100 million people trying to use it, that's when you know you've got something special. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, part of this is sometimes when we're being hit over the head that something is going to become a thing or you should do this or you should try this or just wait, this is the next thing. A lot of times either people who want it to become the next thing because they invested in it in some way, like they're pushing it. Or you see people kind of zag against it just because they don't like being told what to do, right? So I always think about like 3D glasses with movie theaters and what, what it was that 10, 12, 13 years ago. And everyone's like, no, this is the next thing. And it just wasn't. And a lot of people didn't like it. It hurt their head. They couldn't look at their phone. They just didn't like to wear glasses in the movie theater. And then that kind of came and went. Um, going back to 
the beginning of last year, the the metaverse felt like that to me. Where you had just people going, no, nope, this is it, man. Facebook, they're gearing their whole company around this. And it's like, well, what if Mark Zuckerberg is just wrong on this? What if he just made a lot of money and he's bored and he's convinced this is the next thing and it's just not? And it feels like we're heading toward, it's just not. You know, last time I was on the show, we talked about how it seemed like the tech industry had sort of exhausted itself. It was like running on fumes. The stocks were in the toilet. You were just getting into this wave of layoffs. You've had tens of thousands of employees let go from Amazon and Google and Meta. And that era of consumer technology that dominated in the 2010s, you started after the Great Recession, and then you have this rise of consumer apps with smartphones that seem to thrive in an era of low interest rates. It's it's Uber and it's it's DoorDash. Um, all of that seemed to be coming to a close. And you and I said, like, what's the next mountain? What's the next frontier for tech? What are they going to give us next? It doesn't seem like the metaverse is the next mountain. It now doesn't seem like crypto is the next mountain. And I think I told you, I said, you know, I, I see all these interesting new AI tools coming out, GPT-3 and DALI, they're really interesting. And a few weeks later, I did not time this, OpenAI released ChatGPT. Mm. And like, I think like that brings us to just last week. There was this amazing, fascinating split screen between two of the biggest tech companies in the world showing off their new AI-inflected search engines. Microsoft, which invested in uh, the company that made ChatGPT, OpenAI, they did a demo with Bing showing off how sophisticated their new AI-powered search was, and the reviews from tech reporters were really, really positive, especially considering you know where Bing is starting off in terms of its appraisal among uh, tech users. And then Google showed off its own model, Bard, and it was kind of a mess. And so Microsoft stock goes up by 100 billion, Google stock goes down by 100 billion, just because of AI inflected search. So that's what tells me that like, it's kind of well, like- Well, shit, a, it, it even rose the BuzzFeed stock by a dollar. That, right, I mean, yeah, what a fucking miracle BuzzFeed that was. BuzzFeed stock increased by 15 cents or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. BuzzFeed now is doing um, uh, AI powered quizzes. I mean, I, 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 wanna, I wanna emphasize again, this tech isn't very good compared to the promises that people are making. And so to that extent, maybe, I know I just gave an analogy to, to the iPhone. Maybe, maybe throw that out and say, it's a Sputnik moment. So 1957, Sputnik, the Russians launched the first satellite ever into space. The satellite sucks. Sputnik is terrible, like as a piece of technology, but it kicks off an international space race because America sees, holy shit, we can't let the Soviet Union own the skies. And that kicks off the Apollo project. And the Apollo project has all of these incredible technologies that spin off from it. That I think is the kind of moment that we're in right now. We're in a Sputnik moment for AI where yes, you can look at the tech and say, it's not particularly sophisticated. It hallucinates, it gives me wrong answers. But so many people are looking at two numbers, Microsoft up hundred billion, Google down hundred billion and thinking we need to get into this race. We are going to go back to AI later when we do the predictions. I think one other thing at the start of last year was the Ukraine felt like it was going to be this dominant thing that maybe took over the decade. And now at the end of the year, we're in a different place. I mean, you did, you were doing emergency podcasts back then. And um, it obviously has not fizzled out, but it feels like it's transformed into something different. So where do we go with that? And where, what, what did we get wrong about that 12 months ago, 13 months ago? That's a great question. Um, I want to be careful how I answer it because I want to make a point about media coverage of news events. 
the war between Russia and Ukraine remains as important as it was a year ago when I was doing, God, something like maybe 10 consecutive episodes on the Ukraine yeah. war. But it's entered into a war of attrition, which means that from a new standpoint, there's not a whole lot of action. Now, I, I want to be I want to be clear that I don't mean that like the war doesn't matter anymore, but like a part of news is like, you know, has Ukraine, you know, surged into the Donbass and like taken back this huge region? Has has Russia launched a counteroffensive and, you know, crushed the, the Ukrainian army in the south? We're not seeing dramatic moves like that the way that we were a year ago. Instead, we're into this period of attrition. Now, that doesn't mean that in a few weeks, in a few months, the war could become considerably bloodier and both sides could maybe step it up. I mean, certainly the U.S. has sent so much military material to Ukraine and, and, and so has, has have many other European countries. It's still a really, really important story. Um, but rather than be a sort of quick strike war where one side immediately wins, it's devolved into something that the people that I'm still talking to every week are saying, it could last in a phase like this for years. Wow. Like two years, three years from now, the situation on the ground could be basically what we have in mid-February 23. And in a scenario like that, even when it's an incredibly consequential story, it's not as, as, as compelling as a front page news story. And especially in America, people are just looking at that in a lot of ways as, is this going to lead to World War III? And is that, that was, the outcome? And now we've moved to Chinese spy balloons and we've and UFOs are now, are now the, uh, the new things that are that are people are talking about. By the way, I'm going to talk about UFOs uh, in a second. Um, and then the the other thing I think that's changed from a year ago was, you know, you think about a year ago, Kyrie was refusing to play um, without not getting vaccinated and everybody was against him, right? It does feel like there's been a shift on the vaccines and I can feel it anecdotally and just in general, like some of the, some of the research has come out um, there's been some side effects and things like that. And, um, it just feels like there's more dialogue about it now versus where we were a year ago with Kyrie. And I'm not, I'm not excusing anything. I'm just pointing out a reality of where we are. I think in February, I think I do feel like anecdotally, a lot of people are like, would you get the vaccine the next time? Would you get the booster? Eh, I don't know. I don't know if I would do it the next time. It just seems like the virus keeps changing. There's these new forms. What's the point of getting a booster? versus 18 months ago, just blindly, be, oh, I got to get it. That's They're telling me to get it. Now it seems like there's a little resistance to that. I would say two things. One, you're clearly right that there is increased resistance to staying up to date with booster shots. The latest bivalent booster, the uptake, I think, last I saw was in the depressing single digits, maybe in the, the low double digits. So clearly, lots of people that got the first and second shot are not getting their booster shots now because their thinking is, I think, uh, well, it seems like new variants come out every three months and I don't want to stick a needle into my arm every three months. The deal that I made, this is me impersonating, um, trying to impersonate 100 million people I don't know, so that's always difficult, but the deal I made is that you stick a needle into me once, maybe twice, and I'm done. And that decision in 21, 2021, was made before we ha had this cavalcade of variants that I think has scrambled people's sense of how much is too much. Well, and especially if you got the booster right before the Omicron virus kicked in, 
and people who just got the booster got COVID anyway. And I think that was that was a little bit of a tipping point moment, it felt like. I know it was for me. Yeah, that, 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 that might be possible. I'll say this. If you look at the CDC's data for the share of Americans who are dying who are vaccinated versus not vaccinated, and this goes back to the original vaccination from uh, Moderna or Pfizer, there has been consistently, every single month going back several years, a large gap in the mortality rate among the unvaccinated versus the vaccinated. So according to the best data that we have, the vaccines still are doing something. But I do think it's fair to say, because the first time I ever appeared in the show, I talked about the vaccines. And one of the things that was clearly being reported from both the, the Pfizer numbers and from the real world figures is that early on, the vaccines really did seem to protect against transmission of the disease. It was not just about protecting yourself from mortality. It was also about stopping the train of infection. Yeah. And what happened is we got the Delta variant and the Omicron variant. And now I think, if I'm being honest, just about everyone I know, including myself, who got vaccinated, then got the actual disease, got COVID. And you know, I, I, I believe the CDC data and I believe the real world data and the clinical data that says that my mortality risk was, uh, was uh, reduced by the fact that I have kept up to date with my booster shots. But I, in the interest of meeting people where they are, um, understand the frustration that there was this implicit promise from the government and from these companies that if you get vaccinated, you won't get the disease. And what turned out to be the case, what turned out to be true, is that if you get vaccinated, your risk of dying, your risk of going to the hospital, your risk of getting extremely sick is significantly lowered. But the transmission promise, I think, was broken. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, let's take a break and then we'll finally get to our predictions. This episode is brought to you by Crown Royal. It's an award-winning whiskey. It's, of course, a Canadian whiskey. You probably saw the Super Bowl commercial. Crown Royal took the time to thank Canada for all the great stuff they've given us. And they've given us a lot. They, they invented hockey. They invented basketball, lacrosse, football. Did you know they invented movie theaters and IMAX? I love all of those things. My son is even playing lacrosse this year. Hey, there are a lot of great things in the world that you and I probably take for granted that we should thank Canada for. I know growing up, I loved hockey as much as I love basketball. And that's when I really fell in love with the, with the tough but lovable Canadians. We had a few of them on the Bruins, Terry O'Reilly, Wayne Cashman, just tough, loyal dudes really taught me a lesson. Here's where it flips for me in Canada though. I'm officially worried. Canada's had, they invented all these things. They've had all this huge impact. And yet basketball, we've always had the upper hand with them, right? They had Steve Nash, they had a couple other Canadians that succeeded. But for the most part, it was always like, we always knew Olympics, any international competition, we're beating Canada. Well, look forward to 2024. They have Shake Gilgis-Alexander, who's one of the best 10 to 12 players in the league at this point, RJ Barrett, Jamal Murray, Andrew Wiggins, who was just the second best player on a, on a title team and could guard anybody, Lou Dort, Dylan Brooks, Kelly Olynyk, Ben Matherin, Chris Boucher, Shaden Sharp, Brandon Clark. They have that Brissett guy from the Pacers. They probably, there's two other Canadians I'm probably forgetting. Is Canada, there? are they going to take over basketball next? Is that what's going to happen? Well, regardless, 
when you add up all of that sports and entertainment that Canada has given us, it's pretty much a majority of what the shows of the Ringer Podcast Network have the privilege of talking about. So thank you, Canada. And thank you, Crown Royal. Crown Royal, live generously and life will treat you royally. Please drink responsibly. This episode of the Bill Simmons Podcast is presented by State Farm. If you've ever been in an accident and you're okay, but you know what happened, your first reaction is going to be, man, why did that happen? If you ever buy a new house or a new car or a new anything, there's this little rush you get when you're like, I did it. I made it happen. But really, the only words you need to remember are like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to help choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. All right, prediction time. I don't know where AI fits into this prediction. So why, why don't you go first? I, I asked you to make predictions about five different categories, tech, sports, Hollywood, food, culture, and I'll even give you a bonus if you, if you had a six one you were itching to get off. So you tell me where you want to start and I'll follow. Well, we can start with tech. Um, we have already pretty much gone over my prediction or what I was going to predict for 2023 is that this is the year that by December, everyone is going to be talking about how every major company is getting into AI. Uh, Microsoft is going is remaking itself as an AI first company. Google has for years announced it's an AI first company. These kind of tools that are being built, these texts to these prompt to text tools or these prompt to image tools like Dolly, where you can say, you know, um, show me an image of a, a podcaster sitting on a couch um, in an impressionistic style. And in seconds, it produces something that looks like, you know, like Monet painted the face that I'm looking at right now. These tools are, are, are wondrous and they're going to be used in Hollywood. They're going to be used in video games. They're going to be used by kids. You know, one of my friends, Ross Anderson at The Atlantic said that one of the things that he does um, or that he knows that some people do is when they have a dream that they can barely remember from the previous night, they, they enter that prompt into their computer and Dali or Stable Diffusion or one of these text to image um, technologies will draw them their dream that they can show to, you know, their kid or, or their spouse. The ability of these tools to act as, as dream amplifiers, I think is absolutely fascinating. And my prediction, therefore, for tech in 23 is that this is unequivoc unequivocally without question the year of AI and the beginning of what's going to be, I think, a decade um, of AI. I really like it. I think you have to bring in some other pieces to this, like some cousins and some some nephews. The deep faking stuff, I think they're just starting to perfect it more and more. I don't know if you saw Jimmy Kimmel's 20th anniversary show, but he had a conversation with himself from 2003 and they just took video of him and it was fucking creepy. Like <laughs> it, it was like the guy that I worked with 20 years ago was now on the TV again. And I was talking to them about like, how hard was that? How, you must've worked in that for months. It's like, no, not really. They have all the technology now. It's like, they do? So just this whole world that we always kind of dreaded in some ways, that was a big part of movies dating back to like, you know, going back to the late sixties and just, oh, someday the computers are going to take over and watch out. And now it feels like it actually is realistic. It's the first time where like the, the plot of Terminator 1 and Terminator 2 and they're like laying out and then the machines, once they got intelligence, that's when they decide. And 
that's that's my slight fear on this. I don't think we're going to have Terminator 1, Terminator 2, but it is kind of eerie that computers are now able to make a video of me that's not me. They're able to write somewhat like me. Maybe down the road, they'll be able to write exactly like me. We're going to have podcast ads that are done by my voice that I didn't do because they just measured my voice. This is this new world and it goes back to our our uh, our crypto combo. I just hope we have some rules in place for some of this stuff. I hope it's not five years after we're like, oh shit, that went a little sideways. Man, we, we might need some rules. I would, I would love to see us start thinking about some rules now. Would be nice. I could not agree more. I think the promise of this technology is incredible. And I think the risk is almost impossible to imagine the limit to. I mean, I know people at the State Department, for example, that are thinking about writing rules for ethical AI development in the US. So for example, they don't want AI to lie to us. They want what is called AI alignment, right? We remain the boss of the AI and it can't trick us and do things that we don't want it to do. But let's say that we write those rules, that we we delimit our AI based on certain ethical considerations. Well, maybe China won't do that. Maybe North Korea or the Soviet Union won't do that. So now other countries that can very easily build the same tools, but without those ethical considerations, do they have an edge now in a sort of the AI-inflected geopolitical warfare future? Maybe. I mean, these these are the kind of weird, scary thoughts that 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 come out of this AI decade that I'm predicting. And so I, I am not predicting something purely good, to be clear. And maybe one one analogy is, you know, in in 2010, if you and I were talking, and I said, you know, I think you know social media is really going to take off, and it might define the 2010s. Well, it did in many ways. You know, Meta became one of the biggest companies in the world, Instagram, TikTok, and all this. But there's no one I know who would say that social media was a pure unalloyed good. There are so many negative side effects, some of which I think we might talk about, and those side effects are, are in many ways, psychological. The side effects from uh, AI developed by our geopolitical adversaries that um, can lie to actors and essentially act as as non-state online terrorists. I mean, that is a terrifying possibility. And I am excited, it might not be the right word, but looking forward to doing a lot of episodes about thinking, getting smarter about ethical AI. Well, think about the Cuban Missile Crisis six decades ago, where JFK basically has the two different, what were the telegrams? And he has to decide which one, which one he, which one he wants to kind of believe and respond to. And he just makes the decision, right? Now we're in a position where somebody could completely fabricate something that seems real in some way. And who knows what it is? It could be a video, it could be a communication. And then you're just adding this whole other layer of how to just be in charge of stuff that we can't even be in charge of the normal stuff. Now we're gonna now we're gonna have to decide what's real, what's not real, all that stuff. Um, I also think, you know, you you make a good point about the 2010s, where it's like for better or worse, social media kind of defined the 2010s. I I start to wonder the more we get away from it, whether we look at it the same way we look at like the smoking in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. We're like, man, they just had Mickey Mantle just doing a cigarette ad and smoking, holding a baseball bat. And it was fine. And they had no idea. Or the way we look at an old football game before 2010. Somebody just sent me a quick, 
clip the other day of Ryan Clark just taking out Wes Welker, even though the pass was tipped at the line of scrimmage. He just basically beheads him. And mm-hmm. I was like, whoa, remember football 15 years ago? And it's like, oh my God, why, why didn't we have rules for that stuff back then? And I really hope we don't look at social media that way from the 2010s, but I feel like we will. I think the further we get away, we're going to be like, wow, that caused a lot of damage to a lot of people, the conspiracy culture, teenage girls, all these different things are like the, the, the state of journalism, how afraid it made people to just write certain pieces or I, I just think we're going to be unpacking this 15 years from now. The analogy that makes the most sense to me isn't smoking because smoking, even though some people love it and it can be fun and social, is pretty purely bad for you. It's just yeah. basically destroying your lungs. Unless you're it's in Vegas, like a, then I think it's all good. It's, it's only good <laughs> What things. happens Vegas, to your lungs in Vegas stays yeah. right in Vegas. It's fine um, in Vegas. Anywhere else bad. I think it's more like attention alcohol. Hmm. Because with alcohol, there's an understanding that this is this isn't purely good for you, but it can be fun. It can be extremely enjoyable with certain limits. And also we have rules about how certain people can't have access to alcohol, especially teenagers. And the same way, I think most of the most clearly harmful effects of things like Instagram um, have been on teenage girls uh, through negative social comparison in particular, that it's increased distress and depression and social anxiety. And so with, with social media, where I have a complex relationship. On the one hand, it's incredibly useful for my work that I have access to Twitter, but also sometimes I am aware of the capacity of all sorts of people to become addicted to it. I think that is very similar to the dynamic that people have with alcohol. The difference between social media and alcohol, and this goes right to your point about how we find increasingly sophisticated ways to deal with something like head trauma. We know how to talk about alcohol addiction. We have had decades, centuries, maybe thousands of years to negotiate human beings' relationship to alcohol. We know what it's doing to us. Social media is 10, 15 years old. We don't yet fully understand what it's doing to us. So we don't have the vocabulary around cutting people off. Like, what's the equivalent of you should have a glass of water after every shot in a bar for social media? It's not a part of our vernacular. And so I think maybe in the next decade, we're going to build out that vocabulary. We're going to get more studies that show exactly what these uh, algorithmic what it does to are doing to us. Right. Yeah. And then we'll develop a more sophisticated way of saying, if you are too deep or you have been looking at your screen too much, here's how to pull away in a way that still allows you to get the best out of Twitter w- w- without cutting it off. Full, uh, full the turkey. best out of Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> now, it's a, I mean, another analogy is kind of dark, but um, drunk driving up through, I would say, the 1990s, definitely discouraged, but everybody I knew did it or did it a few times or like, man, I can't believe I got home last night. And that was just that generation. And then there was enough education. There was some really good ads. Everybody, the the penalties for the DUIs or a DUI car accident went way up and there was real deterrence. And by the time we got to the 2010s and then Uber comes in and now you, I think if, if somebody, if you had a friend who was like, man, I was so drunk last night when I drove home, you'd be like, what? That's the most insane thing I've ever heard. But in 1996, it wasn't. And I, I do think with social media, as we learn more, and we're going to learn a lot more, um, it's not going to be great, which leads me to my prediction. I think this is the year TikTok gets banned in America. And I I'm think there's a bunch of reasons for it. Um, one is that it's 
you're talking about like cigarettes and, and alcohol, like TikTok is one of the most addictive things that's ever been created. It is an absolute brain suck. I think it's horrible for kids and teenagers. Um, so there's reasons for that. There's also people with vested interests and some power to get rid of it. And that's where I think you're talking about, you have politicians that can make it a cause. You have competitors like Facebook, some of the, some of the big tech people who are like, let's get rid of this thing. There'll be more for us, more attention for us, more eyeballs for us, more money for us. And the China thing, which is, you know, is I think over the last couple of years, they've increasingly become a threat. And you combine all that stuff with the election that's coming and somebody is going to make that one of their, one of their hallmark things. When I'm in charge, I'll get rid of TikTok. We'll reduce our reliance on blah, blah, blah. And I think it could be gone by the end of the year. I really do. I w if I was betting on it, I don't think it's even odds, but I think it's probably like plus 200 TikTok is gone in America at the end of 2023. Let me tell you why I agree with much of that logic, but would take the other side of that bet every okay. day. What's going to happen, I think, is that all the ingredients that you mentioned are going to come into play. Democrats are moving against China in terms of economic trade. Republicans are against China in terms of geopolitics. There's all sorts of agitation on Capitol Hill, I think, to do something against China. And TikTok is clearly in the crosshairs. But before any law is passed and signed by President Biden to officially ban TikTok, what's going to happen is ByteDance, the parent company of TikTok, is going to say, we cannot lose the North American market of TikTok. We can't allow other countries to get the idea in their head Ooh. that banning TikTok is something that they could do. Our, our company, whatever, 13, however many billion dollar company uh, they, they have, our company could die in a year if this becomes a social contagion among global regulators. We're going to sell. And they're going to find some way to sell American TikTok to a US tech company with the promise of some kind of data firewall such that the Chinese Communist Party doesn't have any kind of direct oversight on the actual stuff that's going on, on the content that's happening inside of TikTok. And so everything you said up to the very end, all of this pressure suggesting the inevitability of a TikTok ban will actually accelerate a sale of American TikTok to a U.S. company. And that, I think, could absolutely happen in the next 12 to 18 months. A prediction off my prediction. That's right. <laughs> this is great. I, li I like this. Yeah, I can see Zuckerberg doing that. All right. What do you got for uh, next category? You pick. Uh, let's do Hollywood. Okay. Uh, I got two predictions. Um, let me start with movie theaters. I'm, I'm pretty concerned about movie theaters. And I know this is something that anyone could have said for the last two years, three years, 10 years, um, arguably 70 years going back to like the peak in tickets bought per capita. Um, but something's happening in to the domestic uh, movie theater market that I think is really, really interesting and, and worth just pausing to, to look at a couple numbers. In 2002, Spider-Man sold 69 million tickets and 44 other movies sold 10 million tickets. That's, that's like the middle class of film. 20 years later, last year, Top Gun sold 78 million tickets, more than the biggest film of, of, of 2002. But in the middle class, of movies selling 10 million tickets. It wasn't 44, it wasn't 34, it was 19. The middle class of films in America is dying out in movie theaters, even though the smash hits are as big as ever. One more cut of that data. In 2000, 2001, and 2002, 
the top 10 movies accounted for about 22% of the total box office. Last year, the top 10 movies were 50% of the total box office. This is a market where there is no expectation of a growing middle class. All of the money is going to the top 10 movies. So what are these top 10 movies that are coming out in 2023? This Marvel phase is bad. The audience reviews are not nearly as positive as the first, as the first phase. There's no Avatar. There's no Top Gun sequel. You know, some of the biggest movies that I'm most excited about, like Oppenheimer or Dune 2, these are not films that are going to make $500 million or a billion dollars. They're going to make, you know, maybe you know, th- $300 million. You put it all together, that movie theaters are overwhelmingly more dependent on the big hits, plus the fact that I think this year's hits are going to be a little bit smaller, that that spells a bad time for movie theaters. And as a result, my falsifiable prediction is that movie theaters are going to become a luxury business. The only way to save these theaters is for prices to go up and their footprint to go down. Theaters are going to become a little bit more like Broadway. The, The prices of the tickets are going to go up in order to capture more revenue from the many, but not enough, people who really do still love going to the movies five, 10, 15 times a year. Creed 3 will be an interesting one for this. Hmm. Now, granted a sequel, but that's a movie that, you know, 10 years ago when Creed came out, it was like, oh man, seeing that. Now it's like, I want to see it. Do I just wait till it's on Amazon in three weeks or four weeks or whatever streamer is carrying it? I, I did that with, I didn't see Plane or Megan in the theater. And I really wanted to see both of those movies. Obviously, I'm the target audience for Plane. I mean, literally, <laughs> they, they must have been in the writer's room. Like, hey, we got to make one for Simmons here. I really like Plane. Uh, I didn't see it in the theater. I just waited. Went on Amazon. It was $24.99 to buy it and $19.99 to rent it. I bought it. Guess what? I've watched it twice. Um, but I didn't need to go to the theater for that. I, so I think they're undercutting the middle class from this pandemic thing that happened where they were just getting the movies faster and faster on streaming. But in the same way, it's reduced my interest to go to the theater. My prediction, off your prediction, so Santa Monica right now, they're showing Boogie Nights on uh, on this theater that's on Montana Avenue. Sold out every night. They, they did like two week run, sold out, no tickets, like sold out right away. It's kind of a thing out in LA. And I'm wondering like, maybe movie theaters start to get a little more creative. Maybe there's some retro stuff. Maybe they tap into the nostalgia craze. And instead of having a 20 screen movie theater, maybe we're heading toward like there's three or four and they have the two or three biggest movies and then your nostalgia movie. And we're moved toward, like they had that out. Have you been to the Alamo Draft House in Austin? Uh, yeah. Well, not, not, and yeah, they had, to in Alamo LA. It's great. They have food. They bring it. It's a cool screen. The seats are comfortable. And that goes back to your luxury prediction. Maybe, Maybe the days of the 20 theater complex is coming to an end, but I, I'm still in on movie theaters to some degree. I'll say this for movie theaters as an industry. It is one of the most resilient industries of the last 100 years. And if you look at a graph of movie tickets bought per person in the US, it basically peaked in the 1940s. Like from right. a tickets bought per person standpoint, movies have been, the movie theater industry has been in a recession for 80 years. It doesn't feel like that. Movie theaters still have felt thriving up until the 90s, 2000s, 2010. So I am not betting against movie theaters. I'm observing 
that the middle class of film seems to be eroding for precisely the reasons that you mentioned, that people say, well, I kind of want to watch, you know, Tar, I kind of want to watch Creed 3, but you know what? I can watch that in three weeks. I can rent it from Amazon, um, Amazon Prime in three weeks, so I'll just wait the three weeks. That's really hurting that middle class of film. And theaters are going to have to find some way to adapt. I think it's really interesting that the Boogie Nights solution, again, makes movie theaters a little bit more like Broadway. Broadway Think outside is not, the box, movie theaters. Don't just it, be like, oh, next Marvel movie's out. Yeah, but Broadway like, is not about, oh, we have a, you know, a, a new playwright, a new, a new show. No, Broadway is about, you know, we're doing Death of a Salesman for the 19th time. We're, you know, we're, we're bringing back right. Phantom for the 19th time. We're allowing people to see familiar fare in a new way. And it's possible that movie theaters find that even as familiarity is conquering Hollywood in so many ways with the rise of sequels, adaptations, and reboots, maybe just bringing back, you know, Godfather Part Two and just a beautiful big theater I'd where go people tonight. can get martinis. Tell me where. I'm in. Yeah. Maybe that's the well, future. I also think the the TVs just continue to get nicer and nicer. And when you're talking about middle class, even like middle class and slightly upper middle class, then upper class can all get these movies on these really nice TVs and have basically the same experience where they don't, you, one thing you didn't mention, one one reason, one strike against movie theaters that I just don't think they've solved is the behavior in the movie theaters, which people have become less and less tolerant of because we're not around people enough anymore, especially post-pandemic, where it's like you're in the same row with somebody and they're on their phone and the light's shining from the phone and it's 80 times more frustrating than it was four years ago because you don't have that kind of that give and take with humanity anymore because you're so used to have everything your way. So it's like, fuck it. I'll just stay at home. I'll rent Megan on Amazon Prime. And you just do it that way. Uh, my uh, my Hollywood prediction. I think this writer strike, I, I'm a big his I'm a big history repeats itself person. And there's gonna be a writer strike this year in Hollywood. It's coming. And it's going to allow Hollywood to reset a lot of the things that aren't working anymore the same way they did in 2007 and 2008 after that strike ended when it was like, oh, you know what we shouldn't do is give everybody and their brother a development deal. Let's stop doing that. Hey, maybe we don't have to film 100 pilots. We'll just do 20. This time around, the rhetoric is, you can see it from Iger in his, his Disney earnings call and all across the board, people are like, hey, we thought this streaming thing was a really good idea. It's actually not a great business. Mm. Iger came out and said it. He's like, hey, streaming's a bad business so far. We're doing this wrong. We're spending way too much money on content. We don't make enough back. So in a lot of ways, it's like the same philosophy of some of the startup companies that that people had in the 2010s, where it's like, if we even if we spend way more than we make, somebody will buy us because they'll look at our revenue number. And it's like, oh, cool. Well, you lost hundreds of millions of dollars a year, but you made couple hundred and, and then they buy the company. And it's like, oh, you guys don't make any money. It's like, yeah, you could have studied the books and, and found out <laughs> immediately they wouldn't make money. And I think it's the same thing with this streaming seesaw where it was this arms race to spend so much money on content and all of them at the same time are realizing that didn't work. And now they have a chance to just reset it. It's like the amnesty clause in the NBA for an entire industry. And I think it's going to go badly. I think that, I think we're going to have way less produced shows just going forward, way less produced shows, way less produced movies, just way less is what's going to happen in the next five years. I absolutely agree with this prediction. And I Thank you. spin it a little bit further. I would say not only are we going to see peak TV in terms of the number of original scripted 
shows being made. Uh, we we're already seeing it, by the way. We're seeing it in the UK. We're seeing it in the US. The peak was definitely in the late 2010s or early 2020s. I think you're going to see an age of consolidation in streaming. You have to, mm. because streaming isn't a good business. And so in a weird way, pivoting off of your, you know, eternal recurrence, history always repeating itself uh, idea, we're going to edge our way back toward a cable bundle. There's just too many I feel like we're almost already there. Sites. Yeah. I mean, Showtime and Paramount, uh, Showtime and Paramount Plus are combining. We're now looking at, you know, Comcast and Disney are having a showdown over Hulu. I think it makes a lot of sense for them to come together. Disney needs clarity strategically. It needs cash because it's burning it on Disney+. Plus. Comcast needs to salvage Peacock. It makes sense for Comcast to swallow up Hulu, Disney to get the money that it can amortize over several years, which will make its, its uh, earning statements look a little bit better. And right there, you're edging your way back toward cable bundles competing against each other rather than streaming, uh, individual streaming networks competing against each other. It goes back to, I don't remember who said it, but one of my favorite lines in, in business, there's only two ways to make money, bundling and unbundling. All right, we come to the end <laughs> right. of the era of unbundling. It's done. You cannot unbundle anymore. There's only one path forward to make money. It's bundling. And I agree, this is the year we're going to start to see it. There's going to be some people who suffer. Um, everybody who has an idea for a horror movie where there's something wrong with the house or <laughs> a little girl got touched by something and might be possessed. Those people are in a lot of trouble. Um, everybody with a terrible idea for a, a rom-com where somebody whose life isn't going that great goes back to their old hometown and sees their old boyfriend and it's like a chainsaw and it goes it just goes crazy and then she has to leave and their life goes bad and then she but she learns something that movie's done all of those tropes are going to be out the window there's a, we've made these same movies a hundred different ways I think there's fatigue with that too. You go to Netflix, just click on the horror and just go through and there, there's just pictures of houses. It's like looking at fucking Redfin. <laughs> All of this is ending. Uh, we're going to take one more break and then hit the other categories. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer partner of the NBA. It's just what you need to sit back and enjoy the game. And they're also getting fans closer to the game than ever. You can win exclusive NBA prizes like courtside seats, signed memorabilia, and more. I love Michelob because of how light it is. It's only 95 calories with 2.6 carbs. You know what the perfect time for Michelob Ultra is? A little doubleheader, a little NBA doubleheader. Right? First half of the first game. I don't know. West Coast time. That's usually about 5 o'clock, 5.30. Perfect time for a beer. You can do it. Grab a pack to enjoy today. Learn more and enter for your chance to win at MichelobUltra.com slash courtside, LDA, 21 and up. This episode is brought to you by Simply Safe. Summer is all about fun vacations, but I know that being away from home can be stressful. So many things can happen. That's why I like to recommend Simply Safe, award-winning security that can help give you peace of mind when you're away. The only thing you should worry about while you're on vacation is having too much fun. Having my home, it's great. Couldn't work better. I think Simply Safe is the best because it comes with a variety of indoor and outdoor cameras, sensors to detect break ins, fires, floods, and more. It's backed by 24 7 professional monitoring for less than a dollar a day. It's given me, my family, many others real peace of mind. I'm waiting to have it too. Try it out. A 60 day money back guarantee. No contracts right now. Get 20% off any Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com slash BS. That is simply safe with two eyes, simplysafe.com slash BS. There's no safe like simply safe. 
All right, coming back. We have three categories left. We have sports, we have food, and we have culture. I'll let you, if you want to glom onto your, the uh, fake meat era is over. If you want that to just be your prediction, I'll allow it. Or you could come up with another food prediction. It is my food prediction. So I'll, I'll just gloss it quickly and then you can make your food prediction. So the prediction is, the headline is, it's a vegetarian and vegan winter. Like these, we think about the, the momentum that you had for meat alternatives in grocery stores and fast food places, even at fine dining restaurants. We had Beyond and Impossible Growing, this Impossible Burger and Dunkin' and McDonald's were experimenting with plant-based meat. 11 Madison Park, one of the most famous restaurants in the world, announced it was going with a full vegan menu. The reviews have been, at least for an upscale three Michelin star restaurant, kind of disastrous. So I think all of this is coming to a pause. It's coming to a hiatus. Um, I'm not predicting at all that like, you know, the fact that a hoity-toity restaurant in Manhattan had a bad year and that means the world is gonna change. I'm saying you put all of this together and there's, I, I just see a vibe shift in meat where, where we had this period where it really seemed like there was going to be peak meat, that Americans were going to become more vegetarian, more vegan, eating more of the plant-based stuff. Um, I made this prediction in the Atlantic. I was wrong. Uh, you, when I just pay close attention with open eyes, to the numbers that are right in front of me in the news, um, it's a vegetarian and vegan winter. And uh, 2023 is going to be uh, a year where where meat makes a comeback. Um, not that it needs a, a comeback. It's already a huge part of American culture. Um, but it's going to make even more of an acceleration. So I listened to your podcast that you did with the Why Don't Diets Work guy? Or why is mm. everybody's concept of a diet different? And why can't we just settle on a diet that actually works? And the reason we can is there is no diet that works. Right. And every human being is different. So my daughter and I listened to that together and it really made her think a lot about, even though she was really, really healthy eater, but just food choices and my, my food prediction coming off that podcast, cause my, my wheels have been turning. I think we're going to enter a portion era. I think portions are going to be the new thing that people talk about when they talk about dieting, because the bottom line is, as you covered in that pod and as a lot of people have written about all this low fat stuff or, oh, I have, I, I got gluten-free potato chips instead of real potato chips. It's like, well, that, they just have more sugar in them. You're just pouring more sugar in your body. Um, all the stuff that is seemingly healthier or it's like, oh, that's less calories. It's like, okay, well, what's, what's the fat then? I, all this stuff really comes back to, are you eating too much or not? And if you're eating and it's like, oh, I just put down a uh, bag of potato chips, I'm eating dinner in two hours, then I'm going to the movie and I'm gonna have popcorns and m and popcorn and M&Ms and it's my cheat day. It's like, no, it's that's actually like you're you're having too many portions and eating too much day. And I think there's gonna be a new wave of and they have some of the apps already where you can keep track of what you eat. But I think the big thing heading forward is gonna be it's fine to eat a bunch of times. Just don't eat a lot because your stomach's going to grow there and there's just going to be all this science that comes with it. Do I sound like a madman? No, you don't sound like a madman at all. It sounds like the revenge of common sense in food. Uh, to a certain extent, it's like, you know, the energy balance model of food has to be true to a certain extent. Like if you eat a certain number of calories and you burn more than that number of calories, then overall it seems difficult to imagine that you are going to be gaining that much weight. And that, that's fundamentally what you're talking about, that you, if you, yeah. you, you put the cap on the calories that are coming in and, you know, just basic logic dictates that if you exercise enough, then you can't possibly gain weight. Don't eat the too late. There's like basic things like we just have to get back to the basics. 
Yeah. It's I mean, like this Belichick, is my thing about, just do your job, make plays, do your job. This is my thing about diet and nutrition science overall is that my, my pet theory, and I forget if I said this in the podcast, is that we all know deep down in our bones what's good for us, what's bad for us, and what to do. Like as a, as a theory, we know what to do, but living out that theory is hard. Because the willpower have, to live the out willpower the theory. stuff is really hard. And a lot of that is genetic. Some people just get hungry much easier than other people. Um, for some people, the, the fact of hunger weighs more in their consciousness than for other people. Like I know people who they're hungry, but they can forget about it. They're like, yeah, I'm hungry. One of my best friends in the world, he's hungry. It's like he's got blinders on. He can't do anything else. He's like, I have to solve this problem of hunger immediately before I do anything else. So I, people are people are really different, but the the fundamental basics of of diet ha, don't seem that complicated. Don't eat too much. Don't eat too much sugar. My question for you is that the episode that we did just after that uh, that pod we talked about with uh, David Ludwig was about this revolution in anti obesity medication, semaglutide, Ozempic. But what about that it's shot? Just, that it, it's the, the moment shot. you t- stop taking the shot, you gain the weight back. So you just have to take it for the rest of your life. But I know multiple people that are taking that shot. That was my question. I I wanted to know because I I some people reached out to me from Los Angeles and they said I it's it's not talked about so much yet. But among my close friends, a lot of people are on this anti-diabetes shot, which just to catch people up has just shown extraordinary effects for weight loss, provided that you makes, stay makes on it. Makes me nervous. So, yeah, so in that case, there's it's a, a little bunch of like, things that make me nervous. It's, it's, you know, it's like something like Rogaine, right? You stop yeah. using it and the effect immediately goes away. Um, but what, what is your take on this, this craze around semaglutide and Ozempic? Well, as you know, I always like to wait a couple of years and watch what happens before I dive into something like that. So I never want to be in the first wave, just in general with anything. Like I never want to buy like, oh, Apple's created this new product. I'm like, cool, I'll get the second year of it. I'm not getting the first one. So I kind of want to wait on that. Um, I do think we're hitting this weird era. It's not a weird era. We're hitting this era where people are starting to realize because we have now 40, 50 years of evidence that these stopgap diets or these different little, oh, I'm trying this, or I did this, that there turns out to be a flaw in all of them, right? And so people are getting smarter and savvier just in general with all these little stopgap things. I was thinking about this because I was watching, my daughter's been ripping through Seinfeld and <laughs> I watched the, the frozen yogurt episode with her where they think they're eating this amazing, you know, no, I forget it's no sugar or low cal yogurt but they're all putting on weight and Jerry's going, I've gained four pounds. Um, <laughs> and it turns out they find out that it actually had sugar in it. But, um, but th- this goes back to the eighties of people just trying to do these shortcuts or trying to, Oh, mm-hmm. find this or, Oh, you got to try these chips. They're only 50 calories. And I think in 2023, people are starting to realize it's all bullshit that, you know, like I have a friend who's been saying this forever, like just drink real milk. Forget all this low fat, non fat, 2%. Like, go back, look at the pictures of the people in the 50s and 60s. They look great. And it's like kind of semi hard to refute. I don't know. I, I, I think that everyone, everyone knows what's good for them and they want a shortcut. I mean, that right there is yes, shortcut the diet. It's, that's the diet book industry in a nutshell. People know fundamentally what is true and what is false, but no one wants to do 
it wants to go by the basics of eat less, eat more fruits and vegetables, whatever Michael Pollan said, you know, eat not too much, mostly plants. That Don't is eat not red fun. meat every day. People want a fun shortcut. Yes, they want they want the Jordan Peterson lion diet where they only eat like elk or they you know want to find the Atkins shortcut where they can eat as much bacon as they want provided they never have a single you know a, a piece of bread for the rest of their life or otherwise it'll blow up like a balloon. People <laughs> right. want these shortcuts, but I do think that like fundamentally, if you truth serumed a thousand people, they would all tell you the same basics about nutrition. We know, but we don't want to believe what we know. We want to believe in the possibility that there's a shortcut to get the body of our dreams. Yeah, and also do what's best for you. Like, I don't eat a lot of bread. I, I was gluten-free for a while just because I was trying to get rid of bread because I always felt like it made me tired. But I can eat bread and I'm fine. Like, whatever. It just, people have to, excess is the murder. There's no shortcut other than avoid excess, don't eat late at night. Anyway, all right, go to your next, uh, we have two left. What's your next one? Well, my next one is sports. Um, and I wow. was thinking here, like, you know, there's a couple of interesting things that have happened with um, with ratings. I'm not going to go in, I'm not going to do a ratings thing, um, but there was this graph that went viral of the most popular hours of television for the I last 12 that. months. You it's saw like that? All football. Something like yeah, 82. Yeah, I think 82 of the most popular hours were NFL. Another maybe five were college football. The rest were sports, um, except for the Academy Awards, the election, and I think the Thanksgiving Day Parade. So, like linear TV, traditional television, right now, it's it's still all it's all sports, and everything else is in decline. Th there's no prediction to make there. That's been sort of the status quo for several years, but I do think that's going to continue. I was thinking about like what are the predictions that I could have made a year ago that would have turned out accurate. And I was thinking like if I came on the show. And, you know, I didn't know anything. I basically knew very little about sports. And I was like, you know what? Um, let's start with football. Uh, well, Patrick Mahomes is pretty good. Uh, I bet he wins MVP and Super Bowl MVP and the Super Bowl. Uh, let's go to baseball. Um, I don't know. Who's the most dominant team in the last five years? The Houston Astros? Yeah, let's pencil them in for the championship. In basketball, you know, there's all these incredible players. You got Giannis and Luka and Embiid. Um, I don't know who stands that. I'll just cry uncle and give it to whoever won it last year, Jokic. Um, you go to the NBA, you say, who's the dynasty? Who's Who's been the most successful team in the last six years? That's uh, obviously the Golden State Warriors. I don't know much about basketball. I'll just say the Golden State Warriors win their fourth as a core. That all happened. Like, it's been a great year for sports. I don't want to make it sound like I'm endorsing the it's all a script um, uh, conspiracy theories. But <laughs> I love really, one of my favorites. It, it's an amazing theory. We really are in an age of dynasties across the board. And by the way, I think that's good. I think dynasties in sports are really, are fun. Like an untested theory of sports popularity that I have is that despite the fact that the leagues are designed for parody, national audiences do not want parody. We don't want randomness. We love dynasties. That's narratives. That's clear villains. It's clear heroes. Um, that's what we like. And so in that spirit, I'm going to predict that the era of dynasties continues. I'm going to say that 2023 is going to be the same finals as 2021. Um, I think it's going to be Suns Bucks, um, New Look New Look Suns. I think we might get, I'll, I'll predict our first ever, well, maybe not, maybe not first ever, but first in a while, Super Bowl repeat. I think we're going to get Eagles Chiefs again. We'll see what happens with Jalen Hurts' rookie contract. I think we're going to find a lot of repeat narratives in 2023 as we are you know, firmly situated in this age of dynasties. I like it. 
I actually like when it's a little more static. I, I'm a great team fan. I like when teams have a little run. Like I'm glad, even though, you know, I'm a Pats fan and the Chiefs are in the conference. I like that there's a mountain to climb now, the way the Pats were for a long time. Now it's like, all right, got to get by the Chiefs. That's our marker now. I like having the markers in sports. Otherwise, it just feels like, you know, sh uh, shaking a snow globe. My prediction is NBA related. And I haven't really talked about this yet on a pod, but I'll just make it quick. I think this is going to be like a seminal year for the league for what the next 10 years look like because they have all this network and streaming money that they're trying to figure out their new deal. They have the CBA kind of looming. They have to figure out all this stuff with how much should the max salary be? What's the rookie scale look like? Um, what are the bonuses for all NBA? And there's going to be way more money in the league, way more money. And we're going to have right now, we, we have guys who like somebody like Devin Booker or Dame Lillard in like the last year of their extension, they can make like 60 million. Carl Towns is another one. It's like 60 million. It's a lot of money, right? That the max, if all the money that comes in correlates to where it is now, you could be talking about like 85, $90 million guys. So now you have that, you have just insane amounts of money per year, which is great. Congratulations to all those people. We also have fans who are now watching where anytime somebody's remotely unhappy, they just push a trade to another team, right? Or they, I don't like it any anymore. It's it, basically the NBA has turned into like a class of eighth grade girls where it's like, oh, I, don't, <laughs> I don't like Jenny anymore. I'm now friends with Olivia. And what, what happened to Jenny? She just left over. Now she sucks. She's a bitch. I hate her. That's the NBA. So how do they, how do they govern this? How do they have a competitive league? How do they keep the connection with the fans? And how does this not spiral out of control? I think there's going to be a lot of give and, give and take over these next nine months. Because if you remember that we had a very junior version of this in 2016, the cap exploded and it was the Joachim Noah, Lou Aldang, Evan Turner, uh, Alan Crabb, guys making $60 million. It was like, whoa, that was weird. It allowed Durant to go to the Warriors. But this is so much money concentrated to such a few, such a small group of stars, maybe 35, 40 in all, who now have this inordinate sense of power that now threatens how the league would operate year to year. I'm not saying I'm, it's, I'm, this is an anti-player empowerment thing. This is just like a competitive thing. Do you want to have a league where just every time somebody's unhappy, they can be like, trade me, I'm out. How do they fix that? How do they put rules in place on that that are fair to everybody? I think it's like going to be like landing the fucking, you know, the Gerard Butler landing the plane in the jungle. Like it's <laughs> going to be impossible. It's like, oh, there's a tiny strip. I don't know how they're going to do it. You have so many people with so many vested interests and in how this should turn out that oppose each other. I don't know how it plays out. And everybody I've talked to is like, I don't know how it plays out. So my prediction I is this is going to be a mess. That's really interesting. I have a question back to you about the economics of the NBA. Yeah. It doesn't seem clear from a rating standpoint that the NBA's audience is growing, at least domestically. I know the international audience is massive. The game the audience is attention. way down. Game audience is down. Yeah. So by certain metrics, whether it's average rating for in-game, uh, an in-season game or in-game attendance, by certain metrics, the NBA seems to be sort of plodding along or maybe, you know, dipping a little bit. 
But then you're talking about the fact that stars in the NBA, because of new rights deals, can maybe expect to earn 40, 50% more than the max salary today. Yeah, how it could be like 33%. How does that match up? And is there any limit to that logic? Like that's, salaries that's can't point. go up and up forever if the audience flatlines forever. Well, but think about it this way. So I remember Inside Sports, one of the great magazines ever, um, they had, I think, I'm going to say like 1980, they had Nolan Ryan on the cover and it was like the most expensive athlete in the league. It was some one of those, like the first million dollar guy or whatever, or they had all the guys who made a million dollars total for the year. And it was like, oh my God, like 40 guys making a million dollars. Seemed like so much. Now the guys make 40, 50 times more than that. So to think like there's no limit or that there is a limit on this, I think is unrealistic because the way the CBA is done, it's 50-50. Owners get half, players get half. So if you're just putting 40% more money into the salary cap, guess who gets half of it? The players. So I do think we're going to have 85, $90 million a year guys. And, and I don't think the public realizes that yet. The teams realize it. Everybody kind of behind the scenes is talking about it. But what do you do? It's not like football. Football has an incredible amount of money, right? But they have 53 guys on each roster. So it's dispersed in a totally different way. So Mahomes makes... 40, 45 million. I mean, if Mahomes was a basketball player, he'd be worth 90 million. So I, I just, I think it's going to be contentious and I'm not positive. We, Adam Silver, who I really like as, as a guy, I think he's a nice person. It'll be interesting if he's a peacetime conciliary or a wartime conciliary to borrow the, to borrow the old Godfather thing, because I think that we're headed to a wartime conciliary time with this thing. They're going to have to put in real rules and they're going to have to make it. So like, hey, if you sign one of these Giants extensions, you got to stay with this team for like three years. There is no trade. You cannot be, it's like part of that is a no trade clause for three years. That's the stuff they're talking about behind the scenes, but it hasn't manifested itself yet. So anyway, I, we're going to watch the CBA basically get rewritten in a way that we've never seen before with whatever this next deal is, is my prediction. Last question the NBA. What yeah. are the odds of a franchise tag equivalent in the new NBA contract? Because that clearly has been used in football to keep someone like Lamar I don't think from the leaving players, the Ravens. That's, that's a, you're striking now. That's a strike. I think you have a more realistic, if you sign a giant max extension, you have to stay on that team for two years or you don't get paid. One of those type of things. You're just basically off the table as a trade candidate. So KD signed that big extension, cannot be traded for two years from that point on. And just... I think they want stability. I don't think they like guys jumping around like this. It's not good. It's fun for the players. It's fun for people like me to have stuff talked about on a podcast. But, you know, is it is it was it fun for the people in Brooklyn who just bought all those jerseys and went to the game? Now they just have a completely different team. I don't know if that's a good thing. You know, you want you want you want your players to have relationships with cities. Yeah. And I, I don't know. From an entertainment standpoint, it's dramatic as hell. I mean, look, Super Bowl week, I listened to maybe eight hours of podcasts. I would say that seven and a half hours of those podcasts were about the KD trade and three minutes of those podcasts were about the Super Bowl. It's just remarkable that like, you know, from a rating standpoint, like these NBA games are getting like, what, a, a million people watching uh, concurrently. Super Bowl is getting 100 million, 100x. But all of the podcast energy, all the cable news or not cable news, the, 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 the sports news energy seems based around NBA drama. I find that discrepancy just incredibly fascinating that the NBA it was remains- almost like a it was like a black swan event with the uh, 
with just the trade deadline and then the KD trade during Super Bowl week. Because we've never had Super Bowl week and the trade deadline at the same time, I don't think. I think that was the first time. Hmm. All right, last prediction. This episode is supported by State Farm. If you've ever been in an accident and you're okay, but you know what happened, your first reaction is going to be, man, why did that happen? If you ever buy a new house or a new car or a new anything, there's this little rush you get when you're like, I did it. I made it happen. But really, the only words you need to remember are like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to help choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank. Unlike this podcast, some things in life should be boring, like banking, because boring is pragmatic and responsible, level-headed, wise, all the things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be exciting. Exciting is for three-point buzzer beaters, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money, because when your money is doing what you need it to, you can do all the unboring things you want to do with it. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is the service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Inc., PNC Bank, National Association, member FDIC. This episode is brought to you by Taco Bell. If you're anything like me during a busy day at work, I need lunch that is just as fresh as it is delicious and easy. And the all-new Cantina Chicken Menu from Taco Bell is exactly that, made with high-quality ingredients like seasoned slow-roasted chicken, pico de gallo, shredded purple cabbage, and avocado verde salsa sauce. The new Cantina Chicken Tacos, Burrito, and Quesadilla are the perfect daytime choice. Try the new Cantina Chicken Menu at Taco Bell now. Culture is the only one left. Do you have a culture prediction? I do. I hope this counts as a cultural prediction because it's the story that I'm writing right now for The Atlantic. I'll absolutely do a podcast on it for plain English. And I think it's one of the most important stories in the country. Um, the Youth Risk Behavior Survey is a, a CDC survey that is the gold standard for measuring the state of teen behavior and teen mental health. And it just came out this week, the, the latest oh, numbers. God. Between oh, no. 2011 and 2021, the share of teenage girls who say they experience, quote, persistent feelings of sadness, sadness or hopelessness increased from 36% 2011 to 57% in 2021. So nearly six in 10 teenage girls today say they feel persistent sadness or hopelessness. The share of girls who say they've contemplated suicide has increased 50% in the last decade. This is... Uh, just an astonishingly important thing. I mean, I can't emphasize enough how striking the statistic is and how strange it is in the context of other numbers. Like, this is the richest country in the history of the world. This is a period of peace. It's a period of economic growth. We have the lowest unemployment rate since the 1960s. We have nearly the lowest poverty rate on record. Child food insecurity has been declining for decades. This is not a situation where you can easily point to some material condition in the U.S. and say, well, of course, teen anxiety is spiking. They're more concerned than ever about their parents finding a job or about where the next meal is coming from. You can't point to that. And then you look at teen behavior. Bullying is not increasing. 
teens are smoking less, they are drinking less, they're doing fewer drugs. That's even true if you include vaping. So you've got this just unbelievably fascinating mystery. Teen anxiety is rising exponentially, but all of these subjects you might look at, you're ruling out. So of course, what do you rule in? Well, you rule in smartphones, you rule in social media, maybe you rule in parenting styles. This is such an important question and there's not really a national conversation about it. So, you know, a congressional committee or some kind of blue ribbon commission is not necessarily an exciting prediction for 2023 in culture, but this is going to enter the mainstream in a real way. We're going to have a more salient national conversation around teen anxiety in a way that by the end of this year, I'd predict it's going to be impossible to say, I don't know about this statistic. Everyone is going to know about this statistic because it is both so important and in a certain light, so mysterious. So my daughter came on my podcast right after Labor Day. It was the last time she came on. And we, one of the things we talked about in detail was, was basically this. And that we, you know, she was feeling like a little bit sad for the first time. She's a happy person. She's a lot of, lot going on. It was the first time she kind of seemed like in a funk. And we tied a lot of it to like the phone use. And that was when we put limits on. But it was a combination of just being on the phone too much. Um, lying in bed, like doing different things or, you know, going on Instagram and what are the things she's following? Like she's following either people who are looking their best or she's following these different food sites. And then she's like, it's 930 night, I'm hungry. And she gets upset. She's hungry. And then it's all these different rabbit holes mentally that you go down and guess how we fixed it. She's not on her phone as much. <laughs> you know, we put, we put limits on there and we did things like that. I think so much of it is tied to the phone use with with teenage girls, you know, my daughter's going to be 18 in three months. Um, and I have a lot of anecdotal evidence from a lot of different people, obviously. And it, and it seems like the phone is one of the common denominators on top of all the other reasons it's messed up to be a teenage girl. Um, this ties into my prediction though. Mm. So that we're, we're not, we're not 100% out of the pandemic, but we're mostly out of the pandemic, but we have some distance from it finally. And I think we're going to really start to put the pandemic in a big picture perspective with how it affected certain demographics of people. And I think it's, it's teenagers. I think it's people who were out of college who were about to have their 20s and they just got robbed for two, three years. And then I think it's older people who were by themselves, right? So anybody basically 40 and up, but especially like if you get to somebody like my mom, who's like 73 and lives by herself. I think, I think some stuff's going to come out about just how damaging and scary that was for those people and how stressful it was and that they're not out of it yet. Even though we're kind of out of it, they're not. They've been changed because I know anecdotally, I know just from talking to different people, it just felt like it had a profound effect on multiple demos that we're still like kind of unpacking because it, it was in the moment. So we're not thinking about a big picture, but now this will be the year we start being like, holy shit, that, look at this. I mean, my daughter, she was in ninth grade during the pandemic in March. Didn't really get back to school without a mask until last September. That was her high school. I, I think for somebody like her, she's just like, what just happened? I'm about to go to college. I barely feel like I was in high school. So I just think a lot of stuff's going to come out about that. And on top of that, we live in this culture where there's a lot of like think pieces. There's a lot of stuff shared on social media about 
this is this either bad thing that happened to me or I feel bad about this. And I, I just feel like there's going to be an awareness this year that we didn't have before. Anyway, I don't know if that's a prediction, but it's something. No, it's it's definitely already happening. It's something that's already happening. And, and the same way that I wanted to be careful about my reappraisal of the vaccines, where I think they clearly had a positive effect in terms of reducing mortality, but they were disappointing to a lot of people and their inability to reduce transmission. Um, I think that we're going to have a similar reevaluation about the relationship between COVID, lockdown, and schools. I know there's a lot of policymakers and a lot of writers that are looking around the world and they're saying not every country reacted to the pandemic the same way the U.S. did in terms of closing schools as a first order reaction. Lots of other countries seem to have kept schools open. Maybe they did it with masks. Maybe they did it with more universal health care, but they kept schools open. And it's not obvious that their rates of infection or their rates of COVID death were higher. So it might be the fact that in a disease that has the age stratification that COVID has, where it's incredibly dangerous to get it if you're in your 80s, very dangerous yeah. in your 70s, a little less dangerous in your 50, in your 60s. But starting around you know, middle age, the, the, the mortality rates really start to come down. How do we react when it comes to the treatment of teenagers who, thank God, were not the most affected in terms of mortality by this disease, but who still have relationships with their grandparents and still have relationships with older teachers? I, I do think that it's, it's so unfortunate that the conversation around COVID has become so ludicrously and impossibly polarized by ideology. Yeah. Um, people really, really have dug in. But I would love a more comprehensive appraisal of what the U.S. policy was city by city, state by state for, um, uh, for shutting schools, what the policies were overseas and some kind of effort to pull out from all of that data, what is the best What was policy? the right thing to do? Yeah. If, if we get SARS-3, if we get COVID-2, right, what do we do when we have this kind of age stratification of, of disease? Does it still make sense to force kindergartners to have remote learning with the understanding that remote learning when you're five years old is kind of fundamentally Impossible. That was another demo I didn't even mention was the five to eight year olds who that it's was a, when they're supposed to be socially indoctrinated and they couldn't be. It's a real it's a really hard question. It's a profoundly important point. It's an issue where people are incredibly dug in. And, you know, I know that the CDC has really taken on the chin in terms of their reputation. Um, but something like the CDC, you know, so, like some some big research policy from or project from Harvard or or Yale, some trust institution, I think, really needs to do this work because this is not going to be the last pandemic of the 21st century. Um, and we clearly have to do better, not only for the people most affected by the disease, in this case, seniors, but also for people who are you know suffering from the spillover effects of our reaction to the disease, like children in this country who clearly have suffered in terms of their learning loss and, and maybe their, their social acculturation as well. Yeah, this will be the COVID decade, even though COVID's basically was done last year for all intents and purposes, but the after effects of it will shape the decade. The same way 2010s was the social media decade and you just go back to 2000s was the internet decade. You can keep going backwards. Everything you kind of remember a decade by one thing or two things. And this will, be, I think that will be the number one thing. Before we go, I kept you way too long. You did a podcast with uh, Rosillo about records. Mm-hmm. My favorite record, based on 
that it, it kind of spans different generations and it doesn't like, you know, Wilt's hundred points. We actually might see that again at some point, or it'll just be somebody makes 23s or you can name all these different things. The Lakers 33 game winning streak in 1972 is my favorite record because it doesn't matter what's going on in basketball. It doesn't matter what the rules are. It doesn't matter what evolution we have, what phase we're in, whether Victor Wembanyama is now the dominant guy, how, whether we're having a height boom, whether we're having a shooting boom, whatever. It's just really fucking hard to win 33 basketball games in a row. It just is. And when Miami got to like 25, that was super exciting. I think Golden State got to 25. Miami, they lost it at 27. They still had six to go. That's my favorite one. I think anytime somebody gets within 10 of that, that's going to be the most exciting non-Boston sports thing that can happen for me. I don't really care about the home run record. I, the you know like Even LeBron's points record, I didn't even know what the actual number was. It was like, oh, he's going to pass Kareem. Nobody actually knew what the number was. You go on down the line. But I think that 33 games is a really cool one. So anyway, I wanted to mention that. No, it's great. Yeah, and 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 for those who want to look it up, yeah, Rusillo and I talked about uh, the the most awesome stats in U.S. sports history, and we broke down our favorite statistics in football and basketball and uh, Olympics and baseball. Uh, so the rule that I had to find some way to compare records across sports is what I called the fifty percent rule, and I said, are there records where number one is more than fifty percent ahead? of number two. And it turns out right. like, you, you, can, you can find this um, in many, many sports, whether it's you know, Barry Bonds walking records or Simone Biles championships or Bill Russell's eight straight championships. Um, no other team, uh, I think, has, has ever won five in a row. Um, yeah, right. That one's not going down probably either. Right. So um, it, w with, the, with the winning streaks in basketball, we have the Lakers at 33, the Golden State Warriors... Um, Looks like they hit 28, Heat hit 27 in uh, 2012, 2013. So those don't necessarily surpass my 50% rule. I mean, like, 33 wins in a row is freaking ridiculous. I thought the, the Warriors were 25 because they went 25 and 0. I don't think they got to 28. So may, uh, maybe with the 50% rule, maybe it's like, all right, so I, it's easy to get to like 16, 17, 18. A lot of teams do that. But after maybe the 18... And it's still not 50% better than the 27. With the Golden State, I was cheating. It, it, it turns out at the end of the 15 season, they won their last four games. Yeah, I don't count the that. That's right. Yes, so no, that nobody count. was counting right. that. It's, it's the Heat at 27 that is the next closest um, to, to 33. So that, that still doesn't count the 50% rule. It's, it's but, impossible because every game becomes a playoff game around like number mm -hmm. 22. So you then have to win 11 straight playoff games in a row with incredible media attention. And then you have to win the 33rd game to get to 34. And then you, you know... I just don't see anyone ever doing it again. I would, I honestly believe 100 points in a game is more realistic than somebody doing a 34 game winning streak in the NBA. Interesting. Well, especially with the way that they rest stars today, that might make the 33 straight, uh, uh, especially difficult. I'll say this, my favorite record. And this also, I believe was Rusillo's pick my favorite record in the history of, of, uh, North American sports. It's Wayne Gretzky. He is yeah. the NHL's all-time leader in goals. He is the all-time leader in assists. He's therefore, obviously, the all-time leader in points, which are awarded for both goals and assists. The crazy thing is that Gretzky had so many assists that if he had never scored a goal in his entire professional career, 
he would still be the <laughs> NHL's all-time leader in points. And that's that's just ridiculous. It's, it's, it's a great it's, one. You can't even contemplate it. Yeah, so th- that still gets number one with the bullet from me. But um, yeah, it was it was a fun record, and it was an incredibly fun excuse to spelunk through Baseball Reference and Pro Football Reference and all these places uh, to to figure out the the coolest records in the history of sports. I mean, part of the problem with the longevity era is it's kind of ruined some of these records, right? Like, uh, you know, just LeBron being able to still keep his body in shape. 20 years into the NBA, which was like an impossibility before maybe 10, 15 years ago. And then you think, all right, well, what does this look like 10 years from now? Could somebody play for 30 years? Mm-hmm. You know, and they, like the Brady was the one that really screwed it up. Where you think like uh, in the old days, John Elway just playing 15 years was like, whoa, man, he took so many hits. That's amazing. He played that long. And now Brady, you know, they basically had to tell Brady to go home. I think he would have played again if he found a team. He's going to be 46 next year. Yeah. Um, can I, uh, before we go, can I show you my, my favorite Brady stat that I uncovered during the, the reporting for this piece and podcast? This comes from the Boston sports radio host, Alex Barth. He yeah. said the NFL career, the NFL record for career completions is 67.8%. Tom Brady has made the conference championship. This was last year. 73.7% of the seasons he's been the primary starter prior to 2022. That means that Brady makes the conference championship at a higher rate than any QB completes passes. That might also be true of Mahomes. Well, I mean, Mahomes lasted for 21 years or something. We'll see about that. But um, I mean, I find that a particularly incredible stat. I See, I think there's a better Brady one. There was one, because I remember I did this in a column and I don't know what the final number is, but He's by far the most playoff wins, right? I think he had like 34 or 35 playoff wins. Uh-huh, that's right, 35. But, but he also had, I'm going to say like 13 buys <laughs> or 14 buys. So if you count the buys as a playoff win where it's just like, basically you've said who's advanced in the most playoff rounds in the history with the Super Bowl being the final advancement. He would have advanced like 49 times and the next guy is like 22. 23, something like that. So I always thought that was a good one. Because I, like, why should he get penalized with the buys? That should count. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or we should include the buys. It's like he won 35 playoff games and he also had 13 buys. Same thing for Mahomes. Mm-hmm. I don't know what Mahomes is up to for playoff wins, but he also has three buys and that should be part of the record. It's hard to get a fucking buy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, anyway. I'm with you. I'm with you. Yeah, the, the, I mean, the Brady postseason stats, it's basically, if it's games or yards or completions, he's, he's got them all. Can I be when you when you do the sequel to that pod with Rosillo of most overrated records? Can I be invited Ooh. on that? Can we do that threesome? Yeah, overrated records. I love it. Okay, most overrated records would be a good one. All right, Derek Thompson. I love radio in the Atlantic. I love listening to your podcast, Plain English. Can't wait to see uh, what you have in store for us for 2023. It was great to see you. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, Bill. All right, that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Derek Thompson. Thanks to Kyle Creighton for producing. Thanks to Steve Cerruti as well. And I will almost definitely see you on Thursday. 99% chance. Who knows? Maybe Sunday. Could be Thursday. Probably, probably Thursday. 99% chance. See you Thursday.
This episode is brought to you by Dr. Squatch. What you use in your personal care routine matters, so upgrade your lineup with Dr. Squatch. They have high-performing natural products with no harmful ingredients. That'll have you looking and smelling your best, like their wood barrel bourbon bar soap and lotion or their bay rum deodorant. They even have some limited edition soaps like their Avengers and Star Wars collections. Those seem like they'd be fun to try. And right now, they have an amazing offer for new customers. Get 20% off your first purchase of any amount or subscription order by going to drsquatch.com slash Simmons or use the code Simmons at checkout. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.